Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Very special in-person guest today, Ms. Renee Holmes, a teacher, resident of New York City, and a public advocate for her neighborhood and for her environment. Welcome to Seldom Said, Renee. Thank you so much for welcoming me here. It's our pleasure, I can assure you. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, what's brought you to this time and place in your life? Okay, I'm a lifelong New York City resident, particularly of the borough of Brooklyn. My family is originally from the South. I am a teacher. I come from a family of teachers. Um, I have been teaching in New York City for almost 23 years. I'm active in my community. I'm on my um, block association. I go to my PTA meetings as a teacher and a parent. I think that's important for teachers to also be a part of their school's teachers um, PTA association. That's why it's called PTA Parents Teachers Association. And I'm, I'm a pet owner. I love my pets. I bought, I got my pets from the shelter. You know, last week was clear the shelters. So there's some lovely animals that's available for loving homes in the shelters. There's been a rationale out there that, for instance, uh, law enforcement officers should live in the community. Mm-hmm. Are you taking the position, Renee, that those who work in the community should live in the community? I do believe that those who work in the community should live in a community. But now we, we're at a, a funny phase right now, especially in New York City and Brooklyn. The law says that for city jobs, you have to have 90 days residency. So that means once you get a city job, you have to find residency in the city, a place to live for 90 days. But the problem is that especially in Brooklyn and in Manhattan, for most city employees or especially new college graduates, it's become unaffordable. So I do believe people need to live in the city, but a lot of people are having a hard time doing that now because the rents are very high. The cost of home ownership is very high and it's not aligned with the pay that people are being paid. So I do believe people should live in the city where they work because that's how, you know, you build a community where you live at, but you can't build a community if you can't afford to live there. So something has to change between uh, housing and jobs. Is there any rationale you have for in some way ameliorating the rent? I had gone back to the old neighborhood in Brooklyn that by Prospect Park. Okay. And try to get a feel of being a little boy at 12 and now the adult now. It was a porridge. Mm-hmm. The block was rather strange. The school was somewhat deteriorated unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The rents, though, were incredible. Uh, I do remember rents of $129 a month, and now there were townhouses going for close to a million dollars. Do you forecast or see any solution to that? Well, in Park Slope, the houses are now almost 2 and $3 million. The rents are now, for a one-bedroom or studio, might be $2,500 a month. Um, unfortunately... You know, Brooklyn has this big boom that's going. Every place you go, like if uh, if there's a little lot, they're sticking a building on it. And it's not just one or two stories. They like to do these 
20 stories, 100 stories building, really changing the, the character of, of the neighborhood. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I think for me, I'm a union member, I'm a member of the UFT, why the unions are not attacking this. Because part of the quality of life is being able to afford where you live, um, being able to not live paycheck to paycheck. Um, you, I'm not saying that you need to have a steak dinner every night, or but you need to be able to feed yourself, clothe yourself, and live. Most people are paying most of their salary in rent. The few lucky ones, like I'm a homeowner in Brooklyn, but I was able to get in when it was affordable. And for those of us who got in when it's affordable, we are okay. Like if you have children like myself, um, when they graduate from college, you know, the, the thing is you graduate from college, right? You, you are able to get a job and live the American dream or you graduate from high school. And you don't have to come back home to mommy and daddy because some parents are waiting for that last child just to graduate so they could be empty nesses and turn that den um, that bedroom into a den or do something else on their bucket list but now we have this um, dilemma in our society and it's not just New York City where when the students when the children graduate when the young adults graduate they cannot they could get a job most of them can get a job but can they afford that rent with the salary that they're getting? Unfortunately, I don't see a change because there's a lot of building and development going on in Brooklyn. Um, and the rents are high. I don't see that they're changing it. I also see that they have this thing now where you can apply for affordable housing online. Right. One of my friends who um, came back, she's a young lady. Um, she came back from Paris maybe three years ago. She got a degree to look uh, to get a job here. She applied for one of those affordable housing. Right. One bedroom apartment. I think they were uh, affordable housing was like a thousand dollars a month. She was number 70,000. OK, for that one apartment. The way the laws read now for affordable housing in New York City is that these developers, they get state, city and federal dollars to build. Right. And a lot of the uh, and they have to offer it, make it available. I'm an English teacher, so, you know, we got to learn what vocabulary means. I can make it available, but that doesn't mean I have to make it attainable. So what they do is for this affordable housing for, let's say they have a hundred units, 30 of those units will be affordable. Now the city done gave them land and places to build for a dollar in exchange for affordable housing, 30 units. Right. But they allow the developer to make the uh, criteria for that to get that apartment. So one of the apartment buildings downtown um, Brooklyn, the criteria for the affordable housings was you need to have an 850 credit score. So if you want one of the affordable units, you need to have an 850 credit score to pay between 750 and $1,000 for a one or two bedroom apartment or a studio. Now, if you wanted the market rate rents, you know what credit score you needed to have? 700. Now, wouldn't you take a better chance on me paying you 850 a month than somebody who is going to pay you $2,000 or $3,000 a month. Those people that's paying that market rent need a lower credit score. I can't phantom that. 
The problem is that the city does not make sure that those apartments are attainable and that they're rented out. The, the developers have no incentive to give those apart to make those apartments available because they still get tax deferred. And a lot of those tax deferments are up to 30, 100 years. So they have no incentive. So we have a lot of buildings with our homeless population rising. We have a lot of buildings sitting, apartments sitting vacant in New York City. You might argue that the circumstance is economic, it's social, Mm -hmm. it's political, it's racial. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be a great deal about power. How do those without gain the power to move those with? Well, one thing is we have to we have to learn how to think independently. In New York City, we have uh, a, the political machine. You have the political machine, the Democratic Party. They control a lot of stuff here. And not that I'm talking about party politics, but people need to really ascertain their situation. Our, our, our current uh, state attorney general, Tish James, as public advocate, every year she will put out the list of the worst landlords, right? Some people were on that list for years, Right. Some of those people on the list were also allowed to have uh, Section 8 housing. So the point is, what was the city doing while they're still on the list? And we as the electorate need to make our people responsible. Also in Brooklyn, we have a a serious problem with deed theft. People taking uh, going downtown and um, stealing people deeds. It's been going on for a while. We also have New York City Department of Preservation, which will take a person's building if they said it's been in disrepair, and they will sell that building to a handful of developers. This has been going on for 30 years. But last September 2018, uh, certain elected officials in New York City said that they were going to do a moratorium because there was some type of disparity going on racially then Bed-Stuy and Bushwick where a lot of black and brown homes were a part of that third party transfer the city was taking their buildings and giving them to developers sometimes for back taxes for times for uh, fines and that goes back to the list when you're on that worst landlord list the city under HPD is supposed to levy fines and if the city comes in and do emergency repairs for your tenants then the city goes after the landlord. Now, if the landlord doesn't pay, that stuff becomes a lien. So the problem is we just allow our people just to give us talk. And going back to September of last year, they said it was supposed to be a moratorium. No more third-party transfers because it's ending home ownership for a lot of people, legacy, right? And But this past August, the city was allowed to do it again. So we need to stop having meetings about how many times we're going to meet about a situation and hold our elected officials feet to the fire. And if they don't do the job, then maybe we need to get somebody else in there. I'm oftentimes reminded of a quote attributed to Dr. Martin Luther King. He said he wanted to help his people, but he didn't want to integrate them into a burning house. Mm. Do you feel at some point the system itself needs to be activated and actualized by people working outside the system? What system? 
that. Looking at government and saying, all right, here is an elected official. He's going to solve all the issues. And then finding that he doesn't. Is there a time to pressure that government official or that system demonstrating in some way acting without it? I think there is a lot of demonstration that goes on, but is it productive? Because, see, in New York City, we have diversity in um, diversity in our electorate, right, in our city council, our state assembly, but we don't have diversity in thought, right? So what I think needs to be done is a lot of times, remember, they did the term limits. So they're swapping seats. So you have the, they were city council, now they said assembly. Then they get term limited on that. Then they run for a statewide office. I think what we need to do outside the system is look for new people who are not so much entrenched in a party. Because what we have is nepotism going on. We have favoritism going on that you should not have to be with the clique to get elected. See, this clique stuff is what got us in this problem. And I think what we need to do, the electric needs to they need to start thinking and they need to start asking questions. I'm not saying that they're not thinking. They need to start holding people accountable. And it doesn't have to be that this person has kissed someone ring or this person has been endorsed by this party boss or that party boss. We need to look out. We do need to look outside the system. Government could work, but we as a people have a responsibility to ensure that it works. It's not just voting. Is holding them accountable once they get in the office and let people understand that you don't have this. We're not in a um, monarchy. Right. You don't have a right to that seat unless you're doing what you're supposed to do with that seat, because some of the things that we're dealing with with housing has been going on for too long. And like I said, now we're in a situation where it's becoming a crisis. I have students this year who parents can no longer afford to stay here. It's been getting bad and they have to move out of state. So you're losing some of your great students because their parents can't afford to stay here. And these are working people. These are working people. People are moving. And as a matter of fact, they've been sending people to Jersey now. They go and they ask for assistance. They've been sending people across the river to Jersey. Because there's no affordable housing here. And I think we need to do something besides talk. There's that marvelous quote that was used oft times by Frederick Douglass. He was asked by a young boy, what should I do, sir? And he said, agitate, young man, agitate. How can activism become agitation so irritating, the powers that be, that they have no choice but to listen. Well, one of the things is, like I said, it goes back to you. we might have to elect new leadership. And you have to let people know after four years, look, sit down and look at the record. First of all, people do need to get out there and vote. There's a lot of voter apathy. Um, people don't vote. The voting is going down. And people don't understand the importance of primaries either. They only vote in the general election. It's the primary that decides who's actually going to be on that ticket. And when we're talking about agitate, I remember um, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected governor of California. He was elected governor because they did. I think it was I mean, it was a recall vote. They did. There was something in their system. There was already a standing governor. 
he was able to get enough signatures and enough people to get the governor removed that they had to have a special election. So maybe we need to look at New York City laws, electoral laws, and we need to see, you know what? You've been in office for two years. You say you was going to do A, B, C, and D. You didn't do A, didn't do B, and you didn't do C. They can't come there with a reason why that's substantial. Then we need to say, oh, time for a voter recall, time for you to go. They too comfortable. They too comfortable and they're doing a lot of things that's distracting the people. We're within a minute, 30 seconds of what is proving to be a highly interesting conversation. I wonder when we return that, Renee, whether you ever foresee yourself being that person who will take the place of the individual who is not doing his job. Does the political arena ever appeal to you as an individual? It does. It does. And my students have asked me, so I'm going to pray about it, see where God wants me to go. I've heard that many times mm-hmm. in the black community. I was mentioning to Tamara, I sing with the black gospel choir, the lone Italian in the corner. <laughs> but there is this resort to spirituality, the believer that I will ask a higher power and perhaps it will work out. Mm-hmm. When we come back, I'd love to talk to you about that, okay. whether it's a strength as I foresee it can be, or can it be a liability where one simply accepts and tolerates when it's time to say, it's my turn to change things for my own? This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit WCWP.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. A very special guest, Ms. Renee Holmes, teacher, a resident of New York City, and a public advocate. We were talking about the break of the circumstances afflicting and affecting children, Renee. It seems that children don't play. They don't consider childhood to be a place in their lives. Where do you see this going and what do you feel is the cause for all of this? One of the causes for this, I think, especially in certain areas, especially in urban areas, it goes back to um, our sense of success and affluence it's like we become the american dream the more you can accumulate the more successful you are but in the midst means of you midst of you accumulating that stuff you're not spending time with your children so we think as long as we can buy them a big house or um some name brand shoes or games or clothes take them to disney world maybe once a year on a family trip then that's all we need to do And I think there's a problem with that. It needs to get back where we are spending time together as a family, sitting down. We live in this technology age, and technology is diminishing our humanity towards each other. You can see with the stuff that people post on Twitter, um, like in the South, you say, you need to have a little little shame about yourself. 
They don't have stuff like that anymore. A little family pride. And I think it's because, look, when you sit down to dinner, everybody don't need to have their cell phone out. Right? Let's talk. How was your day? Bring back the humanity. When you have the kids playing these video games, right? The video games are like they like, even, you know, like the, we used to watch Tom and Jerry and um, Foghorn, Leghorn, and they had a little violence and stuff in there, but those were animals, right? And personification. Now you have a lot of these cartoons and video games and it's human beings and there's a little bit of detachment from there that we're not seeing each other as human beings. And our kids are growing up with that. And even in the schools, a lot of schools, they don't have gym like this, like that we used to have gym. The kids are not going outside to play anymore. Um, and if they play, it has to be a structured play. Why does it have to be structured? It has to be structured because our children, their imagination has been so framed that they really don't have an imagination, right? So we need to let them play, let them let them enjoy life. Now we have these schools where kids are in school from 7 in the morning to 7 at night. And then when, and then the other schools, everything is test, 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 test. When do they get to enjoy being a child? And I think that's that's a problem. Some years ago, I was mentoring a young lady who, came to me and said, you know what I did today? Asked her what. She said, I was at BOCES and I worked at the same work table with a black girl. And she said it as if she had been to Mara's. Mm. And I would imagine that the young African-American lady might have said the same thing to her parents that night. This particular person who I was mentoring had an epiphanal moment. This is a person I can talk to. She was talking about dress sizes for the prom. We exchanged numbers, and she was sitting there almost in social shock. In your life, Renee, did you have an epiphanal moment where you realized that the fight is on? Um, well, where I grew up in Best-Eye, um, when, okay, when we first moved over there, the neighborhood was diverse. The public school was diverse. When you get into the 80s, that diversity stops. Now, there were um, other people in the neighborhood, Caucasians in the neighborhood, but they didn't. They stopped sending their children to the public schools that we went to. So then you get back to, you know, in the 70s, everything's supposed to be desegregated. We didn't have that. Um I got an epiphany and I was in gifted and talented programs. And then we could go back to that. I got an epiphany. My first year of college, I went to college. I went, I did a year in Montana. I went to Billings, Montana. And um, that was an epiphany. <laughs> they were African-Americans out there. They had an African-American community out there. Um, very close knit. And that's why we got to learn our history. But the epiphany came because sometimes we think that racism is going to come from when you're a person of color. That racism is going to is coming from a Caucasian person. But sometimes is another ethnic group that's of color. And that was an epiphany for me. 
that sometimes, you know, we see each other in competition unfairly. And another epiphany for me is when I went to uh, Utica College of Syracuse. When you are talking with other people, and like I said, I was in gifted and talent programs up until high school. Um, the level of what people expectation for gifted and talented is in our community, what they give us is different from gifted and talented in other communities. So when you get around other people and you see what they were exposed to, the literature, um, maybe even trips that they went on, and they said, well, I was in a gifted and talented program. And you're like, I was too, but how y'all was doing all of that? And I wasn't. <laughs> I was in a gifted and talent program. So, and that's a big thing now in New York City. Gifted and talented programs. So, um, that's a, we need to make sure, you know, education is a form of control as well. It's what you give people. What you, the curriculum. If you just, that's why as a teacher, I teach writing across the curriculum, reading across the curriculum. So even though I am an English teacher, my students will learn stuff about history. They will learn stuff about science and they will learn stuff about math. Because as a literature teacher, when you start reading the classics and that's what I learned, those people were very learned. When you're reading Shakespeare, when you're reading Chaucer and even the wonderful Toni Morrison Right. If you don't have a well-rounded view, you could read it and you would get something out of it, but you won't fully comprehend it because these people are pulling from science. They're pulling from history. They're pulling from all over and they could put one word in there, one reference, one um, allusion in there. And if you don't pick up what that what they are alluding to, you might miss a whole point. And that. Is uh, something that's pivotal when we're talking about education. Edu we can't, you know, they always say, you know, every child is different. Every child learns different. And we have, we got that. But it's what you expose them to. So we have to be as parents, as educators, even if you're not parent, as community residents, as people in a community, you need to find out what's the curriculum that's being taught how diverse is that curriculum? Not diverse also in the authors, the, the, but the diversity in thought. I think there's a dichotomy where they don't want people to think outside the box. Should gifted and talented be for everyone? It should be. Do we separate by saying you're different, you're better? It's almost that Joe Lewis kind of analogy where they introduced him at prize fights as a credit to his race. Mm -hmm. And then the mayor of New York said, yes, the human race. We kind of separate people by saying that they have perceptions that are better than others, whereas exposing everybody to it, it would seem helpful. Yes. Again, your opinion. Um, okay, so now you know that in New York City, Mayor um, de Blasio had a task force to just talk about the diversity and the specialized high schools and, and the gifted and talented programs. And the task force recommended that they do away with the gifted and talented programs. The gifted and talented programs that are more prolific mean more opportunities are in uh, certain neighborhoods that are mostly white and, and now mostly Asian. 
So they're saying for him to get away with it now because our chancellor, Mr. Carranza, one of his thing was to increase the diversity in school um, in because uh, New York City, if you really look at it, is there's a lot of segregated schools, segregated by neighborhood, segregated by um, ability. So he said he wanted to do away with that. So the panel just released last Tuesday that uh, their recommendation is to get rid of the gifted and talented programs and to provide gifted and talented programs at all schools. When I grew up, they were available in all neighborhoods and all schools. But the problem was they were not offering all the same thing and the same level of expectation. So I do believe you need to have programs available in all schools. but um, And they need to have opportunities for kids to learn what they need to learn. The same thing with math. Um, I also train kids to take the specialized high school tests. Um, and the big thing is the math. So if you start teaching students in second grade, Math sense, because math is built on a foundation, right? It, it builds. Everything is built on a foundation. If you start teaching them early with the math, then of course they can spa- pa- pass a specialized high school test. But the problem, each year over 30,000 students take that test for 5,000 seats. And it's actually a little less than that. The problem is, why can't all high schools offer the same thing that's being offered at the specialized high schools why they can't do that they can't do that because we're in a system where they want to create a system of elite people right and and that's the issue should there be some sort of rapprochement with the white community as an english teacher tony morrison mary baraka Leroy jones marvelous poet I could visit 12 schools that are predominantly Caucasian and no one would have heard of Baraka. We do learn about Boccaccio, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Descartes. Should this be encouraged in those communities that are predominantly Caucasian? There is another culture out there and perceptions of that culture could lead to acceptance of that culture. Well, we should. And that's when we talk about when we talk about as an English teacher and my master's at Brooklyn College, the canon of English literature. Who decides what goes in that canon? Now, when you take the state test, they do have like they do Langston Hughes, uh, Martin Luther King, but they won't. That's what I'm talking about, the diversity in thought. You won't learn about those other authors unless you specifically take cultural literature or this and that or even Italian authors or even Irish authors. But what I'm saying is make it diverse. Right. And that's why as teachers, we have a responsibility to not only teach the curriculum, but enrich the curriculum. Let the students have access so they could think because that's when you open up their minds and it should be taught that. Now, there is something within the New York City um, Department of Education where they're supposed to have a curriculum that's diverse. Right. But that goes also back. Or every is everybody willing to teach that? Right. Do you need special training to teach us? No, you don't. If you're a reading teacher, you should know basics of teaching, reading, literature, um, reading and writing, decoding skills. You you need to know that. Do, does Do you need to know sometimes historical background or literature? Yes, you do. 
even if you're reading Chauncey, you do. And that goes back what I said before. You do need to know the historical background of teaching that stuff. If you're reading Shakespeare, you do. Just like if you're reading Tony Morrison, literature is written a lot of times in a time and a place or about a time and a place. So can I fully comprehend it if I don't understand where that literature is coming from? No, I cannot. So they do need to have a diversity in thought. And it's not only on the secondary level. It needs to be on a college level. Once again, I find myself prisoner of the clock, but we'll try to squeeze in as many questions as we can. It's a marvelous conversation. Joe Clark, uh, principal of Philadelphia, took the position that he wanted to make school palatable to his community. Can you make a school district palatable to its student body and yet prepare that student body to step out into a world that's competitive and different? I think you can. I think you can. And that's Joe Clark. That's the one from Lean On Me, right? Yes. 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 Your reaction, well, perhaps that's an unfair question to put to you, but I watched the film a number of times as an educator myself for a time, still am in some degree. He came and he went, and he came and he went, and I found myself accepting his rationale and then wondering too far, too soon, too little, too late. What was your reaction as a teacher? Well, for Joe, well, the film version, I think at one point, I think he was excellent, but I think also he was fighting enemies who weren't his enemies. Like some of his teachers were really wanting to work with him, like the choir teacher. But his rationale was correct. He was put there to do a job, to bring the scores up. And based on the climate that the school was in, he had to do certain things to bring that scores, those scores up. But the problem that he ran into was they didn't think he was going to do it. And I think a lot of times we need to think about that. Do they really want certain success to take place because he also was the head of Newark's juvenile division after that and he stopped the recidivism rate of juveniles coming back and forth between prison and now when he stopped that that rate went down they had a problem with him but the problem was they knew how he did business they shouldn't have hired him. One of the, there was a segment, I think, of either 60 Minutes or 2020s. And one of the young men said, a couple of them said, but one of them said, you know what? I thought that my life was supposed to be this cycle. Crime, going from juvenile to adult prison. He said, but this man, even with his harshness, he made them learn a new vocabulary word every day. And you had to use it in a sentence. And whatever word you learned yesterday, you had to remember for the next thing. You had to use it. He taught them to read and write. Those who did, he taught them to have pride. So this young man said, he showed me another side of myself. That I wasn't a statistic. That I didn't need to go down that road. That there was an opportunity for me. That I can be somebody. And not somebody that society said that I can be. He evolved me. I'm just paraphrasing what I remember. But then they no longer wanted him to be head of Newark's juvenile division, juvenile detention center. And he and under him, the rate of the kids returning and going back and forth went down. Just like with his school. Wasn't that the goal? So sometimes, and even as a teacher, 
I'm confused. Either we want the truth in the past and regions, or we don't. You want the kids to be successful, or you don't. So what's this game we playing here? I do know that there's money in failure. I'm glad you said that. I've often thought that. There's a truth in that. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit wcwp.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert, special guest, teacher, resident of New York City, public advocate, Ms. Renee Holmes. Would you continue your thoughts on the relationship between money and academic success? Okay. Like I said, I do believe that there's a correlation between money and failure. Sometimes you create failure, you create a need. I live in what's called Central Brooklyn, and it also ties to housing. In Central Brooklyn and parts of Central Harlem, there was a rise of charter schools, right? And the charter schools came about because there was a need. There was a need. There was failing schools there, right? But in my opinion, as a teacher who was working during that time, that need was created. In order for you to create a uh, you to create a demand, you have to create a need. There's money and failure. And I worked in schools where if there's children in the school, the reason you do the lunch forms, right, is the lunch forms are the way for the schools to get money from the federal government per child. And parents need to understand this. Every school year, there's an allotment for your child to get books and other stuff in school. So if it's 2019, your school should not have books from 1989 or 1990 or from 2000 or 2007, right? Because that means some money is not being spent. Okay, and I think in New York and where we were at, there was a need for failure because I also noticed that they removed the gifted and talented programs in those areas. So you had overcrowded classrooms. You took out the gifted and talented programs. You took out certain things that were in school that were helping students learn. Um, and you created a systematic failure. And now all of a sudden, you have all these failing schools. And now, okay, the parents don't want their kids to go to failing schools as they should, right? So now we're going to create a, a way to solve this problem, especially in the black and brown neighborhoods. We're going to come in here with the charter schools. No problem. My kids went to charter school for a while. No problem. But... I'm a child of the 70s, so I watched a lot of those old 70s shows. So they call like the outfits. You only got a few of those syndicate charter school groups that's coming up across the country developing charter schools. And they come with, we have a certain curriculum, we have a certain standard, and I, and I believe that. But with the charter schools, when they came in, they did solve some problems, but they also created problems as well. Because when your child goes to a charter school, 
The charter school could dismiss your child at will. So if your child goes to a public school and they are having, maybe they need special ed services or they are maybe a behavior problem, that public school can't dismiss that child. It has to find ways to meet that child's needs. That's what it's supposed to do. But unfortunately, that was not being done. And I'm going to go back to when they talk about, um, I'll, I'll be more clear. In 2001, I wanted to put my five-year-old in a gifted in town the program in District 13, right? To have her take the test to go because I thought she was so smart and so precocious that she needed to be in a place that was going to excel her. This was a neighborhood that we lived in. I was told that they were not enough gifted in talented children in that district to warrant them giving that test. I've heard that said, and I've never wrapped my mind around it. You, They did not. Sound like, okay. But then it goes back. What's the alternative for those parents then? What was the alternative? Charter school. So you take out the gifted entitlement programs. And a lot of the gifted entitlement programs at that time was not only academic. They were art. They were music. Right? So you take that out. You create a need now for parents who who want that. So where are they going to go? They're going to go to the charter schools. That's in your district. That's in your schools. So you created something. The superintendents, they created something. And people need to track because everything can be tracked. The success rate and failing rate under certain people and how certain districts fell academically and how certain people were promoted to maybe state regents offices to run other school districts and other places. Anything I say can be verified and looked up when I'm talking about failure rates in charter school growing in certain areas. So failure was created. Now we get back to certain schools when we looked at. Um, I was also um, on the education council for this community education council for District 13 from 2008 into 2010. Now, people have to understand you could be flagged as a failing school by the state and the city or both. People will say, well, why would the state flag you? And not the city. Why would the city flag you? And shouldn't they have the same criteria for what's failing and what's not? Well, we we had a school. Um, I think it was MS five seventy one, and the city flagged it as a failing school. It was the lowest performing school in New York City. I think two thousand nine or ten, right? So as a CEC, as district, we go education, community education council put there by parents for parents. I wanted to find out from the principal what was going on. Why was her school failing? How could you how could you be the worst school in the city? All these schools. How could you be the worst school? What's going on? So she said to me. Well, they send students here who are over age. They fell out of other schools. And then I have a population here of students that apply to the school. So another thing parents need to understand also, too. Your child could be middle school is 6th, 7th, 8th. 
Your child could be, how old are you in sixth grade? About 12, seventh grade, 13. Your child could be sitting in the sixth and seventh grade with somebody sitting next to them, 15 and 16 years old. Done been left back three or four times because they didn't get the services or stuff that they needed, which I really think is a problem. So I asked Lisa, so how, how, how does all this happen? And she said, well, I can't get teachers. I said, well, there's teachers in the classroom. Well, there's something called ATRs. They cut her budget. An ATR is a teacher for whatever reason has been reassigned and they don't have a, a permanent place. So I said, well, well, what happened? So she told me. The district will call or this DOE will call and say, we need that teacher to go on a job interview. The teacher's teaching the class. I said, well, who would teach the classes? They said, well, if the teacher doesn't go, the teacher might lose her, her or his job. So they snatched the teachers from the school. So if you don't have continuity in teaching and thought imagine that for a child every day every week or every month you come in you got a new teacher standing in front of you how does that make you feel how does that how, how does your learning have continuity how does that and you 12 years old and you sitting next to somebody 16 or something you got to take a test now does the test say from the state that I didn't have a teacher for six months or had every have three or four teachers. Does the test say that? No. They just know that you're given a test and you're expected to pass. And that's how you could become the worst failing school in the city. Do you feel, Renee, there is a need to be more flexible in our approach to varied communities, how we teach something? I do know of a professional, a highly skilled one, who taught the periodic table by wrapping it. And there were many in the district who were resentful of that, thought tax money was going for no purpose at all. But given the scenario of such difference and such background and such diversity, not only in class and style, but in abilities and learning levels, are we tying ourselves to teachers' colleges? You teach are. it this way? You are. And that's, the, that's another game because you are hiring teachers who are come from, remember I said you have diversity, but do you have diversity in thought? Certain schools of education. You even have one charter school network that have their relay university. That have their own, they, the state done gave them their own college. So you do have teachers that's coming from, and then that's what the DOE is buying. Packaging. This is the curriculum. Because this these people are up, so we, we're doing this, we're doing that. You have graduates that are being hired, uh, even from Teach from America. And these they're only hiring people from certain places, certain schools, certain schools of thought. And those schools of thought are locked in. That learning is only one way, or we teach black kids this way. We teach white kids that you can't do that. Kids learn differently. And what another thing that we need to do is... Kids have, people have multiple intelligence, right? All schools should offer music, art, dance, and gym, right? I might not be good at math at first, but I love music. And in music, you, you have to learn your, your scales. You have to learn time. You have to learn half note, quarter note. That could, I, could sh I could see, well, maybe I knew, need to pay attention to this math because that could help me in math. You have to learn timing. 
So if you diversify what's being allowed to be taught, right, it should be art the same way. All kids should have access to art. How do you know that you don't have another artiste on your hand if you're not given that? Now, I'm going to tell you something. I know someone who was got a perfect score on their state exams. Perfect score on their state exams in middle school, right? Perfect score was in the top 1% of the state. Only four other people, talk about your program, four other people in New York City got perfect scores. Top 1%, top 2% in the state. Didn't give my child not, but anyway, I'm going to say this. Person is very smart, but likes to learn differently, right? Favorite favorite offer was from Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Roberts, Bill Bill Watterson, right? That's the only thing I let our kids read. But the principal that year had something called specials on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The kids would do academics up until eleven o'clock. Then they would have lunch whenever they lunch break. After that, you had your pick. You could do dance. You could do art. You could music, drumming cartooning so they were able to do other things and still get the academic in that goes back with kids being allowed to play play builds imagination it is healthy our schools need to and it's not only reading writing and math and science they need to allow kids to we learn play instruments they need to that, they said a liberal arts education. When you go to college, when you go to college, right? A liberal arts education is you, y'all you have to take electives. And some of those electives are art, music, dance, swimming, equestrian, different things. I know all schools don't have the facilities to offer swimming, right? Or track, but some of them do. They all should have the facilities to offer art and music and dance and theater. In addition to the academics. What do you feel? Those are always the first things to go in a budget vote. Because the people don't understand how important those are. That's why we got to change the thought. And plus, I remember um, Quincy Jones was talking about um, Louis Armstrong told him because he learned how to play the trumpet. And he told him when he was a young man, he said, keep up with this instrument. This instrument will take you around the world. Every child is is not meant to go to college, okay? But if you allow that child to learn other skills, they could be independent. They could be they 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 can learn an instrument where they can travel the world. Now, and that's the danger also too with the system of education. They're teaching these kids to be employees, not employers, to be workers. Now you want them to be workers, but then you don't have an economy where they can afford to buy a house or even rent. So I think they, they take away those stuff. I think I'll I take that back. They do know the power of those creativities from those artistic pursuits that kids can have. I know there is something to be said for trade schools per se. Mm-hmm. 
If you see a waiter in Berlin, he's not a kid working over the summer. He's trained to be a master waiter. And there is an argument for things of that sort. We're two and a half minutes away from what has been a marvelous hour. Hopefully we can do it again, if you wish. In point of fact, for someone in the listening audience from Cold Spring Harbor, just picking a community out there, who says to themselves, I'd like to help, I'd like to understand, I'd like to do something, what do you say to them? Where do they start? Where do they check? What do they do? For one thing, what what they check um, for New York State, there's a lot of things online that they could look at what's offered in our school systems. They could pick a school, they could adopt a school, but more importantly, um, write our congressmen, write our city officials, write our mayor, and let them know this is what I think. This is how I think I would like to help your your school system. Let them know that there's other people listening. There's other people. There's other concern voices that are maybe not here but a lot of times it's not only the people who are in the situation it's people from outside that could shine a light on something that can help and 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 just encourage your kids to to read more to be accepting more and to to have a voice and to think to think outside the box and not um be so con consumed or controlled by what people give you. You don't have to eat every food that somebody gives you. You don't have to eat everything. With a minute to go, could you surprise and enlighten the listening audience by giving them 30 seconds of where you'd like to see yourself in 10 years? In 10 years? And we're coming back where I said I I will pray where I want to see myself. I, I have to ask God. But I know he has something big for me. And it may be public office. This year, I did run for a union rep for New York State Teachers Association. And that was my first thing. And, you know, you have to be prepared. And I do believe, like, a lot of times we have this talk, you know, somebody else should do it. But, I'm, you know, I'm looking at maybe I might be that somebody else. I might be that somebody else. Like they say, click your heels, make a wish for a star on the right. I can see uh, myself and those like me lining up to cast a ballot for someone named Renee Holmes. I appreciate your vote. It'll be our pleasure. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be with us again. Mm-hmm.